going to continue our study this morning on life in the body of Christ. And the first few weeks of this class, we've looked at some of the key building blocks of a healthy New Testament church. And our focus has been on some of the essential attributes of the church and how those attributes can help produce unity within our church. And we also thought about how we as individual members can promote unity uh, in various ways. And so that that would be what we would call a a kind of a 10,000-foot view. We're kind of just looking at the church from a, a broader perspective. Now we want to come down and look at our responsibility at a very uh, closer level of detail. So this morning we'll be discussing fellowship within the church and specifically how church members should relate to one another to build the, the bond of unity that Christ demands and promises. So we'll discuss interpersonal relationships from a positive point of view. That is, we're going to consider what we ought to be doing when we engage with other Christians within the corporate body to promote unity um, to one another and to outsiders about how great our God is. Next week, we'll look at the negative uh, aspect of that, the negative point of view, and that is what happens when discontentment comes into the church. What happens when uh, there are actions that we bring in that actually foster resentment and disunity? And so those are some of the questions or some of the issues we'll address next time. But for today, we want to first discuss how God has called us to relate to one another inside the church through love. And we'll think about how it often is difficult to love other Christians but that Christ's love is what provides for us the model. And then we'll conclude by discussing how we can practically do that to the members within our church, how we can practically show love to one another within the church. So let me have a word of prayer. And then um, I told you I'd give you some time for questions from last week, so we'll do that, and then we'll, we'll uh, get into our, our topic of study for this morning. Let's pray. Father, we do want to live, we want to exist to the praise of your glorious grace, like Ephesians 1 repeats several times, that you chose us in him in order that we would be, um, we would be designed for the praise of your glorious grace, and that you called us into salvation, and that you are sanctifying us, and uh, so we want to be good stewards of this great privilege that we have. So help us, we pray. Give us the grace and the strength to to get through this topic of study and to think about it carefully and practically so that we can think about how it affects our relationships with one another. We pray that the result would be that you would be glorified in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week we talked about church governance. And I told you that if you had questions, we kind of exhausted our time, so I didn't have time at the end. So do you have any questions on uh, the structure of the church, why why we have it uh, as we do, you know, with the the pastor and deacons, and then that that we have a congregationally ruled church government as opposed to an elder-ruled or a hierarchical model? One of the benefits of having a congregational, congregationally ruled church is that those churches that tend to 
um, move towards either moral or doctrinal deviance. They, they become deviant in the way that they think about the truth of Scripture. That is, they start to error starts, error starts to creep in. Or if they become morally corrupt, uh, those types of churches tend to do what? In a congregationally ruled church. Just go out of existence, right? There's, they can't perpetuate. They, they die out. They, or they come, become completely apostate and show themselves to be, you know, opposed to God. But if you have an elder rules type system, if you have a hierarchical model like you have in the Episcopalian churches where they kind of determine what's, what's kosher, what kind of things you ought to be discussing and, and teaching and, and believing then when error creeps into that sort of structure, you know what happens? It doesn't tend to die out, does it? It actually perpetuates. You know, just this is what we ought to believe, and so it just continues. So there are lots of great uh, benefits that, that are inherent within a congregationally ruled system. And when I say that, I just simply mean that the congregation is the final authority for faith and practice. Still, there's, there's structure within there, just like in a marriage relationship, um, you know, there's still structure within there. Even though there's, there's equality between the male and the female, there still is a, an authority structure. But when it comes to voting, when it comes to making decisions that affect what the church believes and how it practices, it, it's based on what the congregation finally decides. So that's what we have at our church, and I think that's because it's based on what the Scriptures teach. Thankful for the the um, church members. Uh, from the past who set that up and have maintained that that system. Any questions on that? Jonathan. I was just thinking that um, there are potential problems with like our form or a similar form of governing. Uh, congregations have become lazy and not do their job and then those who are in authority can do things perhaps the congregation thinks they shouldn't. Yeah. Yeah, and and the other, I think another danger um, too is becoming isolated as a as a church as a whole. Um, sometimes that you know we're independent with a capital I, you know, type thing, and we don't tend to associate with other churches because of the potential danger that brings. There's usually more practical reasons why we don't do that, and I won't get into all that, but. But I think that's actually a problem because in Acts, you see that churches are working together at the very least to to help provide for missionaries, send them out, people like Paul, sending gifts back to Jerusalem for the famine relief and so on. And so, uh, but in addition to that, even in what they believe, they're consulting with other churches, like with the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. It's not that, you know, we just gather our church together, we're going to decide you know, how, how do we handle this the best best way possible? Instead, we, we gather kind of almost like a coalition of churches that are like-minded, and let's talk about this and think about that. And then when there's a conclusion, it's not you have to believe this way, but it's actually this is what we recommend based on what we've looked at. And then, then the church still have to decide whether we should or not. So it's not a hierarchical system like the Episcopalian where it's kind of from the top down. And you have to do this, but it's more of a, a partnering. Like, um, the, what what ought we to do here? We're, we want to get wise counsel from other churches who are in 
in the same sort of uh, mind frame as us. Well, let's turn our t- attention to fellowship um, this morning. What characterizes healthy fellowship within a church? What what characterizes healthy relationships? What what ought we to be aiming for? Well, the Bible has a lot to say about this. And if we were to do a study of all the one another passages in the New Testament, we'd find lots of ways in which we ought to be engaged in active fellowship. But there is one overarching mandate that God gives to us that we have to do as Christians. What do you think that is? Everybody's looking down to their handout, and that's okay. What is it? Love one another, right? The Bible is full of passages that talk about this commandment, that the first commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, and the second is like unto it, Jesus said, to love your neighbor as yourself. Look at that Scripture reference there that I printed for you in your handout, John 13. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So Jesus expects His disciples to love each other. Love is a key to is the key to healthy relationships and it reflects our unity as a body. Why 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 are love and, and unity so important? Well Jesus tells us here in John thirteen it's because it actually in some way it glorifies God by reflecting the relationship that Christ has with God. We'll uh actually not down until John 17. So let's look at that John 17 at the bottom of your handout there. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, Jesus prays, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world, that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. So love is important because it actually shows... We're going to get into this, how it crosses societal boundaries and uh, some cultural boundaries as well, but it also models the love that there is within the triune God. Somehow, in some way, our love for each other, rooted in a community of people who are in many ways unlike each other, in some way, in some dim way, it, it magnifies or expresses the love that there is within the Godhead. That is the love between God the Father and God the Son, God the Spirit. So let's let's just uh, think about a brief overview of Christian love, and then we'll talk about what it looks like to love one another. We're going to just consider some things about what the Bible has to say about love. So number one, Christian love is difficult. Have you ever sensed that? Christian love is hard or difficult. Love is something that begins within our hearts, and and our hearts are the hardest place of all because we are sinners. And so D.A. Carson suggests that one reason in this book called Love in Hard Places, um, he suggests one way... Uh, 
or, or the reason why there are so many exhortations in the New Testament for Christians to love each other is because it's not easy to do. Have you ever thought about that? That these are actually given as commands? That we ought to love one another? Well, we're, if we're Christians, shouldn't we naturally be doing that? this? And in one sense, yes. But in another sense, no, because we are sinners. And so he notes in this book that as Christians, we still have a body of flesh and we all we all have our own little circle of friends or in people that we get along with, those who we consider compatible with us because of the standard that we've set up in our minds. Listen to what he, he says here on page 61. He says, Ideally, however, the church itself is not made up of natural friends. Okay, so you understand what he's saying there? People who just have... You know those people that when you meet them, you just instantly make a connection with them because you're like them. They have similar interests to you. You can just talk to them for hours. Okay, so he's saying that, listen to this, the church is not made up of natural friends. It's actually made up of natural enemies. What binds us together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything else of that sort. Christians come together not because they form a natural uh, collocation, but because they have all been saved by Jesus Christ and owe Him a common allegiance. In the light of this common allegiance, in the light of the fact that they have all been loved by Jesus Himself, they commit themselves to doing what He says, and He commands them to love one another. In this light, they are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. So, sometimes in our churches, and and you can see this you just uh, if you just take a, a survey of some of the the types of churches that are popping up, they tend to go for one type of demographic. I would suggest to you that that's not actually a biblical model. That we ought to be uh, seeking to reach people of all different uh, ethnic races, of all different age ranges. You know, some of these churches you can just you know the type of person that goes there, right? Somebody in their twenty, middle mid twenties, and business executive, you know, working to be a business executive, fairly wealthy, that sort of thing, of, of a certain race and whatever. And and I don't think that's actually displaying Christ's love as well as it could. He goes on to say that uh, after quoting John thirteen thirty four and thirty five, which you have on the front page of your handout. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples. He says, If Christian love for other Christians were nothing more than the shared affection of mutually compatible people, then it would be indistinguishable from pagan love for pagans or from tax collectors' love for other tax collectors. The reason why Christian love will stand out and bear witness to Jesus is that it is a display for Jesus' sake of mutual love among social incompatibles. That is also why we must work at it, why we must beware of the erosion of love, and that is, that is also why it entirely misses the point to suppose that the love of Christians for Christians is something inferior to the love for enemies. The categories are all wrong. Indeed, very often, from the perspective of social differences, the love of Christians for Christians is nothing other than the love of Christians for enemies. Folks, Christian love is hard. It is difficult. And and a lot of times we are going to come face to face with people that we 
wouldn't otherwise have a relationship with. But because of our relationship with Christ, we happily join arms with them because of our commonality in Christ. And so the Scriptures call for us to, to just continually working at it that, that, that this is a hard thing. And um, so if we love people who are just like us, remember what Matthew says, what Jesus says in Matthew, that you know, you're no different than a pagan because they love people who love them. What makes us different as Christians is that we love people who don't love us back often, who are unlovely. And you know why that expresses Christ's love? You know why it expresses the love Christ had for us? Because that's exactly what He did for us. So number two, we can love because of God's love. 1 John 4.19, anyone know that verse? We love Him because He first loved us, right? And um, so we can love because of God's love for us. crucial to remind ourselves of the fact that that our love didn't come first. It is that God loved us first. What does that mean? It's not it's not the idea that, you know, I invited this person to dinner, you know, because he invited me last week. That's not the idea. Rather, our capacity to love comes from God's love for us. We can't love apart from God's love for us. So in order for us to love in a way that Scripture has commanded, we have to understand at some level God's dimension of love for us. It's not born out of our abilities or our will or our want to, just got to kind of grit our teeth type of thing, but we need to reflect on what Christ has done for us. So would someone read for us verses 17 to 19, Ephesians 3. It's printed on your handout there under number 2. Here we have Paul praying for the Ephesian believers. And this is a great model of, of what we ought to be praying for one another. Okay, there are lots of great models, but here's, here's one of them. That Verse 19, that they, other believers, would know the love of Christ. Why would that be important, Paul? Why would it be important for them to know the love of Christ? They've already been saved. And his point is so that they could fill up in all the fullness of God, so that they could be filled up as much as they are able to be able to understand what Christ has done for them. And as they do, that is going to express itself in love for other people. Next point there under number two is that love is a fruit of the Holy Spirit's work. That comes from Galatians 5. The fruit of the Spirit, number one, is love, right? So we can't decide, okay, today I'm going to resolve to love others more, and here are ten ways that I'm going to do that. No, because love is actually an outpouring of our hearts. It actually comes as a result of a change that God does in our hearts. So it's something that God is working within us as we are starting to understand His love for us more. Now, that doesn't mean we, ought, we, ought, we shouldn't think about it and try to, to, um, to work towards loving one another and just say, well, I just kind of wait for the Spirit to do something. But we have to ultimately recognize where its source comes from. So what does this mean for us practically? What does it mean 
to love one another because Christ loved us. Well, we should be actively seeking to fill our minds with thoughts about God's incredible love for us. About what God has done for us. What Christ has done for us in His sacrifice. What He's doing for us. So, for example, it starts with meditating on God's Word. Just thinking about what Christ has done on the cross. And then thinking about how how faithful God has been to you in your life, both in saving you and sanctifying you. And then pray that God would give you an understanding of His deep love. And pray the same thing for your fellow believers. Pray the same thing for me, that I would grow in my knowledge and understanding and love for Christ so that I would grow in my love for you. I am often reminded of the parable of the ungrateful servant in Matthew 18. When Jesus, you know, you have the one slave who is unwilling to forgive his servant of a debt because he thinks it's so great, and yet he had just been forgiven of an insurmountable debt, one that he would not have otherwise been able to pay. And I think the point of that parable is that we can't genuinely forgive from our hearts unless we have have experienced genuine forgiveness from Christ. And we, we need to keep recognizing, keep standing at the foot of the cross and recognizing what a great debt was paid for our sins. And so that when any offenses that come against us, we're happy to forgive because we know what Christ did for us at the cross. Our, our sin against Christ was much greater than any sin that anyone could commit to you. Now, I'm not, I'm not trying to say that I understand all that you've gone through or if I've experienced all that you've gone through. or You, know, you might be thinking, well, you don't understand the depth of the sin or the, or the weight of the sin that's been committed against me. And I would say to you that if you can't forgive that person then you don't understand the depth of your sin, the weight of your sin against our Savior. So I don't understand your sin. I don't, um, I'm not going to pretend to, but I do know that, that your sin and my sin was, in, was significantly greater than what anyone could ever do to you. Well, the third element of Christian love is that it, it ought to bring great joy. You know, I, I don't want you to leave with the impression that Man, loving Christians is really unpleasant. I, I just hate doing this. Because fellowship with other Christians is actually a source of incomparable joy and strength to a believer. Psalm 133 one says, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. In Acts 20, we see a, a sense of Paul's genuine love for these other believers when he says farewell to the Ephesian elders. And they just in tears are are letting him go. And in Second John, John there longs to visit and talk to the believers face to face. And so loving others in the church actually brings great joy. Have you experienced that joy at all from fellowship with other believers? I was talking to Pastor Schultz um, this past week. We went to lunch and he was saying that um, his son's down in army boot camp and uh, he's been getting a lot of letters from him and Pastor Dwight was saying that, that his son's just really missing the, the fellowship that there was in the church and for Pastor Dwight that was really encouraging to him because you know you see you see your son go away and now out from underneath the authority of of um, his parents and, and the protection that comes from being at home 
And now he's starting to see that his son actually didn't understand the greatness of that fellowship that he had at church with common-minded believers. And now that he's away from it and around people who are mostly corrupt, it's hard. And he longs for the time to get back. And you know, sometimes we, we kind of do the church thing so much that we, we forget what a great value it is to have fellowship with other people who love Christ like we do. I'm not suggesting you need to take a sabbatical or, you know, enlist or something. But but I am saying that, you know, sometimes we don't recognize the value because it's just been in front of our face the whole time. We just take a step back and recognize the great value of these people here in this room and in our church that they that they uh, provide for us by showing genuine love for us, just, you know, fellowship. So what does it look like to love one another? We're going to see five things five ways that the Scripture commands us to love one another. Do you have any questions on on an overview there of Christian love? Any comments? Alright. So how are we to love one another? Ultimately, we're saying that God's power is at work, but, but that doesn't remove us from responsibility as with every area of Christian life. It is God who does the work, but we have responsibility. So number one, Love those different from you. Okay, so we've talked about this even in this class, but various times in previous classes, that love is not a respecter of persons. Aren't you thankful that Christ was not discriminating in His love and He only chose people of some certain category? That's the great, the great, one of the great ways that Christ will be praised for all of eternity is because it will be from people of every tribe, kindred, tongue, and nation. Not just one small little segment of society, not just Israel, praise God, but it includes all kinds of people. And this is the way that we ought to love one another as well. You know, Christ was willing to, who, you know, being perfect, was willing to associate with himself with sinners and dwell with them, and should we not be willing to do the same? God has been even-handed and non-discriminating in His love toward us. We know that James 2 tells us we should not show favoritism. In Romans 12, Paul admonishes the Romans not to be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. People who are on a lower plane than you. Are you willing to do that even within the context of a local church? I should say specifically within the context of a local church. Sometimes we're thinking, okay, I need to show all these expressions of love to people outside, and we should, but ultimately... The best expression of your love, apart from a marriage relationship, should be within the church. And so form relationships and care for for people who are different than you, who are not in the same age bracket as you, who are not in the same economic category as you, who have a different personality, maybe a little bit quirky from your perspective. You know, you may be quirky to them. Just keep that in mind, right? Visit the elderly, care for children, help with young people. Or, or, or how about this? Work to proactively seek out members who simply um, may have a difficult time integrating with the church body. Do you, do you know church members who are just having trouble assimilating with the body? Why, why don't you seek those people out? Or maybe just choose one. Seek that person out and help them to, to you know, just invite them over for dinner or, or go out to lunch with them or something. 
take the initiative on that and talk with them. People who are different from you. You know, you might be kind of an outgoing type of person. You might think, well, you know, I don't know how, why it would be hard to integrate with the local church. Because for you, it's very easy. And so you kind of like when other people just come in and quickly assimilate. But you see these other people who are kind of introverted and, and you don't have any sympathy for them. Seek those people out. Show love to them. Love those who are different than you. Number two, love sacrificially. On the Christ, uh, on the cross, excuse me, Christ demonstrated a sacrificial, selfless love. It was a costly love. And Christian, you are called to to sacrifice yourself for the sake of others. So let me just give you a few examples. Ephesians five. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. So for the husband the standard that he is supposed to to uh, meet up to is the one that Christ set. And that is that He gave Himself fully for the church. And that's how husbands ought to love their, lo- their wives in a self-sacrificial way and for her good. Remember, Christ didn't do this um, solely for Himself. He did it for the sake of the church. And that's what we ought to do as well. Paul says in Galatians 6.2, Bear one another's what? Burdens, right? And so fulfill the law of Christ. So in our relationships with one another in the church, sometimes what we want to do is have other people bear our burdens, but that's not the command. The command is not have other people bear your burdens, but actually seek out where you can help carry someone else's load for them. In fact, later on in Galatians 6, it says bear your own load. So your primary responsibility is to take care of your your load, your burden, and also help other people bear yours. Now, the great part about the church is it will it will be mutual in that. It will be mutually bearing each other's loads. It's not going to be you have to just bear it all and just, you know, too bad. Even our own church covenant calls us to this. It says, watch out over one another in brotherly love to remember each other in prayer, to aid each other in sickness and distress, to cultivate Christian sympathy and feeling and courtesy and speech. How can we do this? How can we love sacrificially. Um, it could be, you know, helping bear their spiritual burdens. could be helping bear their physical burdens or some other kind of challenge that they're going through. Um, it may mean providing material help to someone who's, who's in need. It may mean just giving them an ear when they're really distressed. It may mean giving up your Friday night to visit someone who is ill. They just need some encouragement. They're just really beat down maybe in the hospital or something and they, they need some encouragement. So I'm going to state something that's very obvious here. Sacrificial love is usually not convenient. Right? It's usually not convenient. That's why it's sacrificial. When Christ gave Himself, Isaiah 53 says He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon Him. And by His scourging, we are healed. Does that sound very convenient for Christ to be crushed for us for something He didn't do? That's what bearing people's burdens is like. You bear struggles that you didn't bring about. You bear struggles that, you know, sometimes they didn't bring about either. That's not what I'm suggesting. But, but that's part of bearing... It's, it's inconvenient. 
And so we ought to love one another. We ought to bear their burdens because love compels us to and it empowers us to. Number three, love by speaking the truth. Our relationships in the church should be marked by speaking the truth of the Scriptures to each other. So turn to Ephesians chapter 4. I've put a lot of the references there on your handout, but this will be a good one for us to look at together. It's actually on your handout too, but uh, we'll look at it anyway. Ephesians chapter 4. Here's a beautiful picture of what the church ought to be doing. That we as a church ought to be showing love to one another. And how do we do that? Someone read verses 15 and 16. So the idea of speaking the truth of God's Word to one another is an exercise in spiritual watchfulness. As a believer, you personally care for your own soul. You watch out for the soul. You know the kinds of sins that come in. You you watch out for those things. But your responsibility goes beyond that. You need to be watchful for other believers as well. So you need to speak the truth to them. When they say something that is in error... There's a right way to handle that. It doesn't mean you have to be, you know, I'm always right, I know the Scriptures, that type of thing. But but maybe just challenge them or ask them a question in return. Is that really what God has taught us in His Word? Is that really how we're supposed to handle that situation? And questions actually provide a, a less confrontational way of causing the person to think about what they're doing. Is this something that God would be honored in? Okay, or, or just pointing them to the truth. Here, here's what the Scriptures say about that. Here's how I've dealt with that in my life. I, I've struggled with that as well. And here's how I've dealt with it. And just speaking the truth to one another. We, we need each other. We can't live on our own as Christians. Hebrews 13, or 3.13 says this. And this kind of supports that point that I just made. We can't live on our own as Christians. Encourage one another day after day as long as it's called today. So whenever the day is called today, then we ought to encourage one another. Why? So that we won't be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So we could take the converse or the reverse of that that text there. and We could say, if we don't encourage one another day after day, then it's likely that we will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. If we're not part of a church body that's showing love to one another by speaking the truth to one another, we're in danger of being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So, when times get tough in your life spiritually, it's not time to pull back. It's time to re-engage. Make sure that you're engaging in the church even more so that people can be watching your life and that they can be encouraging you. But the same thing is true for us as we look at other people, that we ought to be encouraging one another. So this will often include gentle rebuke, um, something that we 
most people shy away from. Some of you may be wired to to handle confrontation. You just lo- you feed on confrontation. But most people don't love confrontation. And yet, loving, gentle rebuke is actually a responsibility that we have for one another. And that's what the Word of God does. It doesn't mean we have to go up to people and say, you know, I'm a, I'm a know-it-all and I know exactly what God's will is for your life. But you know what God's Word does? It actually provides teaching and correction and reproof and training in righteousness. So just as we give them the Scriptures, as we're teaching truth to them, we're actually gently rebuking them. We're showing them what the Word says. Listen to James 5:19 and 20. My brethren, if any one of you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. You know, we we strongly believe that once we are saved, we are always saved. And that is true. That tends to be more from God's perspective, though. We don't know when a person is genuinely saved other than whether they show signs of life or not, right? And so what James is saying is that you can actually save somebody from death if you turn them from the error of their ways. So from our perspective, there are people that are showing signs of life and then walking over the cliff. We can actually grab them before they go over what James is saying. We keep them from that. We encourage them and, and reprove them, really. How might we do this? Well, one way is to pay attention to what's happening in other people's lives. Do you know church members who at one time seemed to be seemed to be particularly active in church and now they've started to pull away, draw back, and maybe even stop attending altogether? We as a church have a responsibility to pursue these people. To turn them from the error of their ways, show them that, you know, if you're not being encouraged day after day, then you are going to be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Do you realize this is eternally dangerous for you? Pray for them specifically. Give them a call. Arrange to have lunch with them and see how things are going. Gently confront them with love. Genuine love and concern for others will probe into these areas of life in these areas of life. All right. Any questions on one through three? How we show love to one another? I will quickly move to these last two here. Love by showing humility. Jesus in Philippians two, three through eight, humbled himself and became obedient to the cross, right? And that's the attitude that we're supposed to have. The same attitude that Christ had when he humbled himself. So how do we love? By humbly submitting ourselves to each other or or subjecting ourselves to their needs, their desires, by considering them better than ourselves, by not thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought to think, as Paul says. Colossians 3.13 says, Bearing with one another, forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. So we bear patiently with one another. We forgive one another. And um, that also means that we need, we need to be willing to accept correction from other people. You know, there will be times, believe it or not, 
when you are in need of correction. Now, we've kind of been focusing on make sure you're watching out for yourself and others, but there will be times when you need correction. So, when someone comes to you and perhaps doesn't do it in a humble way, they maybe are a little bit clumsy and arrogant, condescending, and they're talking to you about your sin, could there, could there be any truth in what they're saying? See, a wise person accepts correction. That's what Proverbs says. And I would add to that that even if it's not done in the right way, okay, is there some level, maybe they're doing it the wrong way, maybe they're handling it, maybe they're adding in other things that don't really apply, but is there something truth, true to what they're saying? So just, just uh, be quick to accept correction. Think, what can I learn from this? What, what is God trying to teach me through this person coming to me? And so this is all contrary to how we normally think and act, right? It's not easy, and, um, and it goes against our fleshly nature. So we need to follow Christ's example if we're going to be humbly, following, uh, humbly showing love to one another. And, um, and then I've got those other two there for you. How do we rejoice with others? Meditate on Christ's humility. Consider God's promise to the humble. You know, God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. You want grace in your life? Do you want God to pour out His grace upon you? And seek to be a humble person. Um, remind yourselves that, that we will be together for eternity. You know, if you can't live with these people with whom you've covenanted together, what, what makes you think that you're going to be, do, be able to do that for all of eternity? You know, it, it starts now. And, and taking joy in the relationships that you have starts now. Um, number five, love with kindness and compassion. Christian relationships should be characterized by a warmth and gentleness that is a reflection of the kindness that Christ has shown to us. You know, we can we can have, be buttoned up in every area of life, including our doctrine. But First Corinthians thirteen three says, "If I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and yet I and even if I surrender my body to be burned, but if I don't have what, it profits me nothing. I don't have love, so no value. I'm like a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal." Christ was moved with compassion when he healed the leper and lots of other people that he interacted with. And we ought to be moved with compassion when we when we show love to other people. I want to uh, address one final observation here um, before we finish here. We've been talking about loving other individual members of the church, but Scripture calls us to love and be committed to the whole congregation, not just a subset. So how can we do this? How can we love the whole congregation? Number one, something I've been encouraging you to do lately, pray through the entire church directory. Pray for the members of this church who are clearly spelled out on there. Those are the people to whom you have the primary responsibility to love. So pray for them. That that would be a great way to show them love. Do you know what kind of needs that they have? Pray for those needs. If you don't know what kind of needs, then then go ask them 
And then I would encourage you just to pray some of the prayers that Paul prays for, for the believers, right? Or that Jesus prays. That they would grow in their love for Christ and they would be filled to the fullness of God. So pray for them. Number two, love uh, through acts of service to the entire congregation. You know, that may mean you know helping run the sound on Sunday morning or... or um, or teaching, or being involved in children's ministry, serve the whole body of Christ. And this will actually foster unity by not just saying, you know, well, my little age group needs these sorts of things, so I'm going to take care of that. And I think we do a lot of damage when we segregate churches, when we, you know, put people in all their different age ranges. I'm not saying anything against Sunday school. I think there's some value there, but uh, uh, to breaking them up. But there ought to be some commonality between you know, people like Sarah Sally and Josie Elwert who don't share the same joys and struggles in life but are both Christians and have a commonality in Christ and they should be able to get along, right? And and we should be able to do the same thing with people who are in different age categories than us, different life circumstances, maybe different gender than us, right? And um, And when we do that, it shows that our love is really kind of otherworldly. It's it's kind of something that comes not from us, but from God. Number three, form a discipleship relationship, um, either formally or informally. Who, who needs to be encouraged and needs to grow? Is there someone that is a younger Christian than you that you could encourage or maybe a less mature Christian than you? That you just even do that informally. And then number four, um, demonstrate love by by giving generously for the good of the congregation, or is that number five, number four? Any questions? So that's kind of the positive aspect of love. It ought to be in fellowship, that we ought to be pursuing one another in that way. But now we're going to look at, the, or next week, we're going to look at the, the negative aspect, that is, that what happens when we start to become discontent or when other people in the church become discontent? How do we handle that? How do we... Um, really muffle the sound of of conflict and, and absorb the shock of problems in our church. All right, let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the fellowship that we can have in Jesus Christ. And we, we're thankful that it, it happens much more than just at our meals when we tend to call those fellowship, but fellowship ought to be happening day after day as long as it's called today. And I pray that you'd help us to proactively seek out other members who need to be encouraged. And I pray that that you would give each of us individually great value just from being a part of a church that loves you and wants to show love to one another. And I pray that you'd help us to grow in our um, concern for one another as we pray for one another. And uh, I pray that the result would be that more and more people would be discipled and be growing in their knowledge and love of Christ and that practically it would work out to your um, name being magnified to the praise of your glorious grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.